Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. You're listening to John Anderson Direct, featuring Walter Russell Mead. Our guest today is Walter Russell Mead, an extraordinarily gifted commentator and writer that I've long admired uh, and who I think... um, is really worth following if you want to understand how the world is unfolding before our eyes. Uh, He's a distinguished fellow in strategy and statesmanship at Hudson Institute, the James Clark Chase Professor of Foreign Affairs and Humanities at Bard College, and a columnist at the Wall Street Journal. His most recent book is The Ark of a Covenant, The United States, Israel and the Fate of the Jewish People. But his regular columns are very highly regarded. I've been an admirer of them for many years. Uh, He's in Washington and I'm in Sydney, so we do have a computer in front of us, uh, each of us. But I do hope you'll enjoy this conversation and find a lot of value in it. Walter, thank you so very much indeed for giving us your time. I deeply appreciate it and I think our listeners will as well. Well, thanks for having me. It's a real honour. Can I ask then, if we could perhaps begin with Ukraine, I worry, I have to say, about where it might land. It's not so long ago that there was a wild optimism. Everybody was cheering the Ukrainians on. We were staggered at their progress. We thought perhaps they really were going to be able to capitalise on what looked to be Russia's incompetence out of their gallantry with a lot of Western know-how and, of course, armaments. But it continues on. Uh, We've had the big dump of classified information, uh, which was very worrying in itself, uh, that that, that gives us pause for concern again. What is your view uh, on how it might end and the risk of it dramatically escalating at the other end of the scale? I think the the first thing to remember about war is that it is, in fact, war, and which is, by definition, unpredictable. Uh, because both and both sides in a war are throwing everything they can think of at the problem in a fairly chaotic way. I mean, I think it's fair to say that at the start of the war, the Russians had a theory of victory. They were going to move in, decapitate the government in Kiev, and within you know days or weeks, the entire country would be under Russian control. Didn't work. Ukrainians also had a theory of victory. We can say the West had a theory of victory, which was that we would impose such drastic sanctions on Russia that the economy would collapse in short order and Putin would be forced by domestic politics either out of office or to end the war. That didn't work. And so now what we have is two sides, neither of which has a clear path to victory, improvising looking, you know, reaching for some kind of a stick to beat the other one with. At the moment, it seems clear that um, neither side is ready to stop. They both think there is more to be gained from continuing the fighting than there is to from, from trying to make peace now. Putin, I think, believes that in the long run, he can outlast Ukraine that the West will get tired of the, um, of, the, of the war as we get tired of so many other things. He's probably hoping that Trump would be re-elect or elected again in the United States or that Ukraine would become more of a partisan issue. So we see that. All I can say is that on the military side, we're going to, we've already seen the conventional wisdom flip many times from the Russians are winning to the Ukrainians are winning to it's a standoff to the Russians are winning to the Ukrainians are winning to it's a standoff. It will keep spinning. 
I've gone back and looked at um, commentary on past wars. And what is extraordinary is that the, the commentary is always wrong. That is, people really are not very good at predicting how a, how or when a given conflict is going to cease. So I, I am not trying myself to predict. I, there, there's a lot to worry about. There's a lot to fear, but there are also things you know, to hope for. Uh, what we know now is that I think the only thing we can know is that the outcome of this war will be based on events and on a situation that we do not yet, we have not yet seen. We just don't know where this one is going. I must say, as I look at it in Australia, it seems to me that America, with a fair bit of help from Britain, is still doing all the heavy lifting in terms of supporting the Ukrainians. And we worry about that diversion of resources and wonder why the Europeans, can't, for, to be really honest about this, can't do more because we worry about the Americans being totally distracted by all, I won't say totally, they're claiming not, but very tied up with that issue whilst Frankly, in this part of the world, we have people to our north who are worrying us. Yep. Well, you know, first of all, the idea that the Europeans would do more to help Ukraine because they're worried about the feelings of Australians is is not a realistic kind I know of that. calculation. <laughs> but we worry about <laughs> oh it nonetheless. Right, exactly. Uh, but I don't think the Germans stay up at night asking themselves, what will Australia think? of us if we don't do X. Uh, so, the, you know, the, and this is, I think the, the real problem with the United States is not so much how much our, our attention are we paying Europe versus Asia, but how much attention are we and, and commitment do we have for the world as a whole? Because honestly, the American position, American interests are global. Uh, you know, you look at our trade, a third of it is with our hemisphere, roughly a third of it goes across the Atlantic, roughly a third of it goes across the Pacific. You look at our classical geopolitical interests, we need a balance of power in Europe and we need a balance of power in the East. Um, we're, we can't, this idea somehow that the United States could write off one theater and focus on another is a, is a kind of, I think, a pipe dream. Then the problem is that at the end of the Cold War, a lot of people in America thought that, that the world, you know, the history was over and we won. And so there was really, we could, we could reduce our military budget. We could reduce our foreign aid budget. We could reduce our commitments virtually everywhere but have a world that every year was more peaceful, more democratic, and more prosperous, that we could put less into our foreign policy and get more out. And we're, we, have, we are awakening to the reality that that was, wrong. that was a mistaken calculation, gravely mistaken. And to maintain, you know, forget promoting democracy, which would be lovely, all of these other things, simply to protect our, our vital national security interests. We are going to have to make significantly greater investments. We face significantly more risk than, we're, than we expected to face. But the foreign policy elite establishment that's telling all of this news to the American people, you know, is saying, trust us, give up. Yes, I know we've been in charge for 30 years. And yes, I know you've been fun. We've given us the defense budgets we asked for and the aid budgets we asked for. And yes, I know that our policies have, have brought not only no success, but greater danger, but trust us and give us more. And we promise to make you happy and safe. People don't necessarily believe that. Well, it raises two questions, doesn't it? Intent and capability. So on the intent front, as we look at it, we see a divided America. You've written a lot about this. Uh, you know, where does America really see its role? Uh, and secondly, um, we see a bit of a tendency now, and I think you've already alluded to it, perhaps from the more conservative end, that 
maybe we shouldn't be involved so much in world global affairs. Maybe we should return a bit to the 30s sort of doctrine. We'll look after ourselves and let the old world and the new world that's out there uh, squabble over themselves. We will be America. So on the, the question of intent first, any thoughts as to how America going forward, it's a very different America to the one that I yeah. thought I understood uh, when I was in government. And secondly, after that, we might come to capability and your thoughts there. But intent first, if I may. I, you know, I think Churchill understood us pretty well when he said you can always count on the Americans to do the right thing after they've exhausted all the alternatives. Um, and, you know, for the average American, Dean Acheson once said the average American has less than 10 minutes a week to devote to the study of foreign affairs. Uh, and that was before the Internet stole all our time and attention. So, um, I, the, if you know, and I think until very recently, Australians were kind of similar this way. We're, we're a long way from anywhere. We're self-contained. Uh, why do I need to know the latest policy statement of the Chinese government or the Indian government? This is just not very interesting. I'm going to, you know, go and live my life and have fun with my family and worry about my job. And that's, you know, the average American tends to think that way, too. But what happens is when we behave as a country in that way and we let our our sort of self-preoccupation take over, things in the world gets more and more dangerous till finally someone really comes along and hits us over the head with a brick, at which point we, we wake up and we look around and we start trying to think about what to do. Uh, the other thing that happens is because we look so, so inconsequential and stupid between wars, Foreigners often underestimate us and say, okay, well, now the Americans are hopeless. One of the reasons Hitler wasn't as worried about American entrance into the war as perhaps he should have been was that he thought, well, you look at the American press, they're not doing anything, their army is tiny, they are completely preoccupied with themselves and the latest Hollywood movie star, they're decadent. So we behave in ways that both make it possible for, for danger to rise overseas, and we give people overseas reason to think that we, we are so over the hill, so decadent, so self-preoccupied, that it would be easy to take us out. Then they try, and then all hell breaks loose. In many ways, I find comfort in that, because it is the way that I see it. So stir the giant and see what happens. People need to keep in mind that America carries a lot of sting. That leads me to the second question, capability. We hear a lot about this, you know, um, how uh, apparently now the Chinese have more warships than the Americans. They can't match the tonnage, and we assume technologically they're not in the same category, but nonetheless, we hear that. We hear talks of uh, how the British Empire and then the Americans, when they were, if you like, top cops, maintain, broadly speaking, a policy of being able to maintain two major conflicts if necessary and a small one on the side. American capability as opposed to intent. Right. Uh, we still assume that it's massive, uh, but this is a very troubled world with a lot of troubled spots that could flare up. Uh, and you've been writing about this, uh, America's allies developing you know, America Plus. We might talk about that in a moment, but how do you see uh, American capability? It's a mix. It's a mixed bag. Um, one, I think one thing, though, it's important to stress is that during the entire Cold War, the Soviet Union and its allies had stronger conventional forces in Europe than we did. You know, there was never a day when the American and NATO forces had more tanks, more ships or other things than the Soviet Union in that theater. Uh, and we always depended on a combination of the nuclear deterrent and our ability to gear up and resupply. Um, but the assumption was always that the Soviet Union would break through in the early in the early fighting and we would have to drive them back. So in that sense, our posture today 
is not so very different from the posture that ultimately won the Cold War. I am not saying that that's a prudent thing. I think, and again, that when the Soviet Union had the greatest population of anyone in Europe and you're looking at a land war, it's very hard for an international alliance to match it conventionally. The place where I'm most worried about the failure of U.S. defense planning and capability is that 15 years ago, no sane person anywhere in the world thought that China had a, had a chance to land a single boat on the shore of Taiwan without, you know, in the face of U.S. opposition. Today, the, the war games and the other indications that we get say that we're in a kind of a gray zone where, you know, there are scenarios under which China could win, at least for the short term. Uh, the fact that we, and I must say, and our allies allowed ourselves to go from a position of overwhelming superiority to one of contested superiority uh, will rank historically as one of the great examples of human folly and blindness. I've said and I believe that on the day of judgment, Neville Chamberlain will rise and condemn the weakness and the stupidity of this generation, that he had less warning and responded more wisely to the threats of his time than we have done, say, since 2014, when President Putin removed all ambiguity about his approach to international affairs, or for that matter, you know, since Xi Jinping rose to power and made crystal clear what China's ambitions were. Uh, and we have sat immobile, talking of other things, our soft power, democracy promotion, lovely ideas, nothing wrong with any of these things in themselves. Um, while we allowed this danger to reach a critical state. It was, it was madness, it was folly, and we are now rip, reaping the bitter rewards of a massive failure of duty. Do you think there's been almost a sort of a spiritual element to that, though, that we've become you know, so hypercritical in many ways of our own culture, we've you know, abandoned belief in many of our values, uh, trust has broken down in the very ideas that stand behind many of the institutions of freedom and so forth in the West. Uh, and there's a sort of a moral equivalence that's, that's emerged somehow or other. We don't understand the difference between human flourishing under freedom uh, and the rules of freedom and, and, and the arc of autocracy, as a former prime minister has called what's emerging. John, I, I want to take it even deeper, because when I look at, at the world today, um, you know, the concept of, of an apocalyptic end of the world used to be a purely sort of religious or theological, or even for some mythological concept. That is, you know, it would take, it would take a supernatural intervention by a deity to end the world. But ever since the nuclear weapons were used at Hiroshima, we have known that humanity has this, has acquired this power itself. And we've also known since the 1940s, at least that, that the Enlightenment hopes that somehow science and technology and progress would mean that humanity would overcome our moral evils and flaws was false. You, you have to only look at the footage of the survivors of the Holocaust to see that humanity, enlightened, cultured, modern man has a, you know, has the, the same capacity for brutality, for hatred, for cruelty that our ancestors always had. Uh, it takes, you know, to honestly face the dangers of the world situation that we are in and the absolute lack of any guarantee that the human race will, will find a way past the, the challenges that exist out there. 
whether you're an environmentalist and you think in terms of catastrophic climate change or people in Silicon Valley who worry, you know, artificial intelligence will make us all slaves to machines or nuclear war, genetic plagues, whatever. The dangers we face are so enormous and our ability to control them is so limited that unless you as a human being have some kind of deep grounding that gives you a foundation of courage in order to act, I think it's it, it becomes almost impossible to look reality in the eye because it is so terrifying. And you find all kinds of people living in various forms of denial about the gravity of the human condition. So you, you, you will certainly find these people who, who sort of somehow fix up a belief in the arc of history that progress will eliminate the evil in human souls, despite all of the evidence that we see. And you find people who deny, you know, simply deny the gravity of our situation because it's so bleak. It, it, it's like if you have terminal cancer and there is no treatment, why think about it? Why not divert yourself while you still can? And But unless you have a true appreciation of the gravity of the human condition, you can't make sensible policy. You can't look the troubles right in the eye and then make the appropriate decisions on how to face them with sort of fortitude and dignity. So I actually find that to be an important contributor to some of our cultural problems uh, and sort of the amount of displacement behavior that we see. Uh, people, you know, the, you know that old Chesterton, G.K. Chesterton line about the the drunk looking for his car key, his house keys under the lamppost. And uh, the guy says, well, why are, you know, did you drop them there? He says, no, but, you know, this is the only place where the light is. So um, I think we find a lot of our political leadership, our cultural leadership, who are no more exempt from these problems than anyone else, simply unable to face facts in the eye because without either a faith in God or some kind of Churchillian level of self-confidence given to very few, it is not possible in our time to provide real leadership. So I think in that sense, the loss of faith in God, the loss of of self of civilizational self-confidence in the face of these problems is profoundly disabling. Thank you for those words of wisdom. Uh, <clears throat> the only thing I can add, I think, is that what, what staggers me is that there are so many highly intelligent people, including in academia, who actually deliberately seem intent upon avoiding a situation where we might ask those big questions, where our young people might have their horizons expanded to the point where they're able to grapple with reality. You see this in the silencing of dissent, in the, the whole business of winding back freedom of speech, attacks on freedom of assembly, it's essentially attacks on personal freedom of the sort that would allow people to at least look for some answers in the middle of this mess. It's as though it's all trivialised and somehow or other, all you need to worry about is a gender pronoun. You know, if you, if you owe the bank a lot of money and you owe a lot of other people a lot of money and you have no way to pay, the last thing you want to do is to have conversations about personal finance. Um, you don't want anyone to bring up the subject. You get very... You, you want to talk obsessively about other subjects and other topics, and you get very angry if anybody tries to, to do anything that even indirectly touches on this fear and incapacity that you sense in yourself and with this problem that you, that you know is, is important, but that you just cannot see your, 
your way to, to solving. And, I, and I, again, I think we have to think about individual psychology here. And of course, it gets worse when you get into group psychology and a kind of a, a mob uh, forms around this. But I, but I do think we, are, we see a society that's in denial of its, of its real condition. And someone in denial becomes angry uh, and contemptuous and goes through all kinds of psychological evolutions to preserve that denial. And this is, you know, and an, a society that has moved as far away from its faith in God, its historic understanding of itself as, as ours has just has this sense of disconnection in, in incapacity. And it looks at these immense historical problems. You know, we, we can talk about the defense of Taiwan and, and so on, but looming all of that over all of that, of course, is the same specter of the Cold War, the specter of nuclear war. And it, it you know, and people should be terrified of it. It's terrifying. But if we're, as a nation, as a society, we have to be able to, to think about it and process and deal and make decisions. So caught between a sort of a, a sense of psychological isolation in capacity, and then a sort of geopolitical global future of the world thing, people are, are not in good shape and they are responding as people do in that kind of situation. It appears that uh, both Russia and China and probably many other autocratic uh, dictatorial type societies believe that the American and Western cultures are essentially decadent and in decline uh, and uh, it's almost a race uh, to uh, the point where they uh, go under between military action and uh, engagement and them simply fading away as so many civilizations have before. Uh, but how do you think China now views American capability and Western capability, in particular following on Ukraine, where the sanctions have been more widespread and have held better, I would have thought, than the Chinese would have expected, certainly than the Russians would have. They must be hurting Russia by now. And American military know-how and Western military capability, their armaments have proved to be extremely good in the field. So China thinks we're decadent. China is intent, it seems, upon global dominance, certainly regional first and then maybe global. Uh, but there have been a couple of checks, I would have thought. How do you think they're seeing us, if I may ask? Well, I think after the 2008-2009 financial crisis, um, the Chinese leadership came to the belief you know, that Marxist intellectuals have been coming to for 150 years, that the latest crisis of capitalism meant that the final doom of capitalism was upon us and that we're in the last days, what they say, late capitalism. Um, and so the Chinese abandoned Deng Xiaoping's idea of peaceful rise and moved to press forward in, a, I think, an overconfident way. Uh, since then, while they certainly see all the decadence, the division, the dysfunctionality, um, I think that there has been a sense partly driven by Ukraine, partly by the way American allies, including Australia, of course, including Japan, India, you know, the, the American network of alliances is beginning to tighten as China asserts itself, its neighbors then look to strengthen their ties with each other and with the United States. So I think the Chinese have understood that that whatever social crises may exist inside some of these countries, the geopolitics are not as quite as favorable as they had originally believed. Uh, but then as they look at, at their options, there's a short list of countries they can work with against the network. This is North Korea, I suppose to some degree Pakistan, Iran and Russia, are the sort of major elements. And then you have sort of smaller kind of hangers on and clients in various places around the world. So 
they are, you know, I think they they see Russia as even more important to them, even though Russia has been weakened by the Ukraine war. Russia is more essential to China as an ally. And so we see China supporting it. Both China and Russia seem to be doubling down on support in Iran, I think, in the belief that the Middle East is the weakest spot in the sort of U.S network here and that that's that may even though iran is the weakest country there may be the most opportunity in the middle east to sort of push back against this american system so the chinese are now convinced the united states is hostile but i think they also feel the united states is more capable than they had hoped so we have a little time if we play it correctly do you think We've seen these horrific war games over Taiwan. The West shooting itself in the foot again with uh, uh, President Macron uh, really, I think, dividing the Western allies in the most extraordinary uh, and unbelievable way uh, by implying that uh, Europe shouldn't involve itself in, 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 in the sort of China versus America tensions. I thought that was absolutely extraordinary given what's happening in Europe. Uh, then you've had the big uh, information dump. Um, how does all that play into our quest for time, keeping in mind that in many ways China is peaking at the moment? Yeah. Well, I think, you know, it's, 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 these things are all very difficult to say. I, I, I've written that, that in about 2014, the world went from a post-war era to a pre-war era. That is in a, in a post-war era, international life revolves around the questions and problems that were left over from the last great international conflict. It's a kind of a mopping up stabilization. In a pre-war era, international life is dominated by problems that if you don't solve them could lead to the next great power conflict. So we're clearly in a pre-war era in that sense. But how long will it last? What is China's timetable? Um, it's hard for me to see China invading Taiwan before the next election on the island in 2024. Because if the KMT wins, then the Chinese might have a reasonable hope of gaining the prize at some point without all the... Uh, the cost and risk of, of a war. So, you know, you have, I think that's a real factor. Um, and then depending on what happens in on Taiwan and how the new Taiwanese government conducts itself, we would see something else. Um, I think right now the Chinese probably feel that their own economy is not as stable as they would like it to be. And so that um, a, a war which would, you know, it would be economically devastating for China, a war over Taiwan. It'd be economically devastating to all of us. But for China, you know, there'll be no ships, shipments of oil and, and soybeans and things through, you know, into China. Uh, even if the U.S. didn't blockade, and I believe we would blockade, um, insurers are not going to insure shipping in a war zone. Um, you know, so, and there'll be no exports from, from China. What does that do to employment in China? Uh, I would certainly see the U.S. freezing all Chinese sovereign assets, including their very large holdings of U.S. Treasury bills, so that their, you know, the, the sort of international currency stock would be worthless overnight. Um, so, you know, this is, this is not something that China is, is lightly going to undertake. They might do it, but there are heavy costs and they know there are heavy costs. And the long-term risks are great. China is not self-sufficient in energy. It's not self-sufficient in food. Um, war is, is a very, very serious proposition. So, I believe that, that if we act deliberately and intelligently, Japanese are doubling their defense budget. Australia has 
its new defense review, I think contains some very, very positive things. In the US, our budgets are going up and we're thinking in a much more focused way. India, I believe, is beginning to think about the South China Sea more than it has in the past. Vietnam knows what's at stake. So um, I think it's still possible that we get through this without a confrontation with China. It's not, unfortunately, certain that we can get out. And to some degree, it's out of our hands. It's, China will make these decisions. So I don't, I don't hold with putting a timetable on what they do. I would say we are in the gray zone. I hope we can stay out of the red zone. It will require, though, won't it, as you've written yourself, I think, uh, America to be coherent about the whole thing. And you, I think you've written about how many countries are now seeing that they need to stand with America. You've just referred to some of them as America Plus. So they're seeing the need to add strength and capability to America. But some are developing Plan B in case America does decide to withdraw or does divide so badly that it looks incoherent. And plan B is how do we make peace with China? And that brings to mind my, to my way of thinking the, what Churchill warned about, those who feed the crocodiles, uh, thinking they won't be eaten, simply get eaten last. It's a dangerous right, strategy. Dan. Yeah, I, I think that's happening. Look, if you want to see what plan B looks like, look at the Middle East, where uh, countries like Saudi Arabia and the UAE, which were for many decades have been aligned with the United States, are now looking toward Russia and toward China as greater partners of greater and greater importance, uh, are looking to a Chinese brokered um, normalization with Iran. I think there's a the Russians and the Chinese are saying to the Gulf state Gulf Arabs, look, we have more power to prevent Iran from attacking you as Iran's friends than America does as Iran's opponent, because America is so sort of weak-willed, so, so much on the retreat in the Middle East, you're safer with us than with, with them. And it, is, it seems clear that at least some people in those countries, some very senior people, have found enough merit in those arguments that they are starting to make new kinds of arrangements that I think are, are quite consequential for the future. To be really frank about it, it seems to me that although he never got much credit, the previous president was stronger in his performance in the Middle East than the current regime has been. He was, but I think um, the overwhelming impression that people outside the U.S. have received in the last, over the say in the 21st century, is you know first the Americans elect George W. Bush and we have one kind of policy for eight years, then we elect Barack Obama have a very different kind of policy for eight years, then we elect Donald Trump and do something wildly different there, then we elect President Biden and we go off in another direction. You know, where will we go next? What will the Americans do next? And that, I think in some ways, while Trump did have um, an instinct for power that some of his, that his immediate predecessor may have lacked, and so was, you know, did make some decisions that were on the money, or at least in the right direction that, that his predecessor would not have made, the, the impulsiveness and the sense of instability that came to people about the nature of the American political system through the Trump period offset a lot of the good that, that he and other, in some ways, really did try to accomplish. So it's that, it's that sense of instability, inconstancy, and unpredictably, not the unpredictability, where people need a bit more security and reassurance. I think that's, Americans need to think about getting our own act together so that our foreign policy is more consistent from administration to administration. 
And so when any president of the United States speaks and says, this is what the United States intends, people around the world know that he's speaking for the nation and not merely for his own administration, party, or point of view. In relation to Iran on that question in particular, we've seen uh, a lot of chopping and changing over the so-called deal uh, that was put in place and pulled apart by Trump who didn't trust it. And now you've seen the Democrats trying to restore it. Do you see the real prospect of Iran triggering war in the Middle East? Look, if I were, if I were Putin, and I was in trouble in Ukraine. The war was not going well, and I was worried about the cost and its actual outcome. I don't think I would detonate a small tactical nuclear weapon on the battlefield. I don't even think I would use a big strategic strike against Kiev or something like that. I might just help Iran cross the nuclear threshold. Or even more subtly, I would announced that I was going to beef up Iran's air defenses to the point that the Israelis would no longer feel that they, they had the ability that if they had to, they could intervene against the Iranian nuclear program, because that could well trigger an Israeli attack on Iran. And boy, if we wait another six months, we won't be able to do it. So it's now or never. And that I think it has a, you know, if you think what, what would happen in the aftermath of this, you start thinking Iran, Iranian retaliatory strikes, perhaps uh, oil is not moving through the Persian Gulf, the price of oil with Russia already off the market is going up to $150, $200 a barrel. If you wanted to divert American attention in the West from Ukraine, if you wanted to change the dynamics, this would be a very cheap way for Russia to do it. Now, I don't know that, that he will or that he'd feel the need, but I think we need to understand the enormous vulnerability that exists in the Middle East, fundamentally because of a lack of, of coherent planning and policy in Washington and a few other capitals. So that brings us to Israel. Uh, you've recent, recently written uh, The Ark of a Covenant. We'll talk about that in a moment. What were you hoping to achieve? Uh, uh, what did you set out to do in writing this particular book? It seems very interesting to me. Well, it, I wanted to, I, I started out by wanting to clear up misconceptions that people had about the US-Israel relation. But as I, as I researched it, I found that Looking, looking closely at this relationship and the cultural and historical dimensions of this relationship is a terrific way to begin to understand American culture and American foreign policy as a whole. Um, for years, when I would travel around the world and, and, and talk to people about American foreign policy, People would say to me, well, you know, the reason America supports Israel is because the Jews run America. I mean, you would hear, you would hear it said that simply. And if you, you know, people would say, well, why does Donald Trump have the policies that he does? It's because of the Jews. Because you look at the United States and you look at American politics, the large majority of American Jews hated Donald Trump, hate him to this day. Large majority, if you look at, at financial contributions, far more Jewish financial contributions went to Hillary Clinton in 2016 and Joe Biden in 2020. Trump in no way represented Amer the American Jewish community. Neither did George W. Bush, another president who was accused of, of crafting America's Israel policy to suit the all-powerful neoconservatives and Jewish backers who were supposedly in charge. So you have these kinds of quasi, you know, either quasi or openly anti-Semitic ideas about how the American political system works that make it impossible for people to understand actually what is going on in American politics, what's going on, how does America make its foreign policy, 
What are the thought processes? Where is it likely to go? None of this will you understand if you are sort of hornswoggled or, or deceived by these, by these myths. Um, but you also find when, when you ask people, why do you support, you know, who supports Israel in America? Most people would say it's, it's white evangelicals and Jews, and that that's where the support comes from. Well, white evangelicals in the latest figures are about 16% of the U.S. population. Uh, Jews are, are 2%, a little under 2% of the U.S. population. So you put those together, you get 18%. But it goes up and down, but usually in polling, over half of Americans respond to say they support Israel, they feel sympathetic to Israel, they're warm toward Israel. So the white evangelicals and Jews make up about a third or less than a third of the support for Israel in the United States. And, and so you have to ask yourself, who are the other two thirds? Where does this come from? And the answers lead you, at least led me, into a fascinating encounter with a very complex American history, which I think illuminates a lot about the country. Can I ask you very broadly, um, uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu uh, has been at the forefront of international news recently for seeking legal reforms and a swathe of other changes that many are calling anti-democratic. He says he's trying to save democracy. What is going on? And um, what, how do you see the future of democracy in Israel? I think democracy in Israel is going to remain robust and content, contentious, quarrelsome. Uh, you know, uh, they're going to continue fighting bitterly with one another, which is often what democracies do, which is to say, you know, they're going to have politics. Which is, they'll be democratic. Look, the as far as I can make out, and as, you know, the, the, one of the hardest things to do is to try to understand the legal system of another country, and then to, and then and then to discuss proposals to reform the legal system of another country. Very hard for outsiders to do. And so, when an American hears about a Supreme Court interpreting the Constitution, okay, that makes sense. But if you tell me, which is true, Israel has a Supreme Court, but it doesn't have a Constitution. I know. What is this? Uh, what does the Supreme Court do if it doesn't have a constitution to interpret? Um, and then when I hear that the the judges, the current judges, can block potential replacement judges for any reason. That is, you know, in the U.S., as, as is well known, we have a, the president nominates someone the Senate has to confirm them. So the politicians have the last word over who gets on the court, although it has to, the president, the Senate have to agree. In Israel, the court, the existing court can, can block change. Now, if you tried to introduce that into the United States, the country would go up in flames if liberal Americans thought that the current conservative majority on the Supreme Court can maintain a conservative majority to the end of time, we would not endure this. Um, but in Israel, this is precisely the situation that exists. And so that I see that even many of the opponents of Netanyahu's specific reforms will agree that there is need for reform of the court in Israel. I, When I look at some of the details of the reforms, I am not convinced that they would be improvements. For example, the idea that the, a simple majority of the Knesset, uh, the Israeli parliament, could overturn a Supreme Court decision. Honestly, if I were an investor or a property owner or something like that in Israel, I would be very uncomfortable with the idea that a simple majority in the legislature could deprive me of my property regardless of any pre-existing law. That does not sound to me like a step toward greater consistency, clarity, or anything else. So I think I probably personally come out 
I think where most Israelis do, which is, well, there needs to be some changes, but we can't just adopt wholesale what these people have proposed. Very interesting. Well, um, can we round out with a couple of questions? I'd like to seek your view. Can we come back to the question of, uh, if you like, China and America seeking influence and then if the worst happens and it fails and they end up in conflict, those things are incredibly expensive. The world is awash with debt. The West is, as somebody who was involved with a government that was reforming and paid down debt and thought that you should not spend in one generation beyond your means and pass it on to a future generation, I can't believe the amount of debt the West has built up. But China has built up even more. Yet, of course, they're both, both uh, uh, you know, are looking for friends. The Chinese have been very effective, although some people are now learning the price of accepting Chinese largesse. Um, others are saying America needs to match it or outdo it at every point. Think the Marshall Plan, saving Europe after the Second World War, 13 billion in 1948 dollars was a staggering amount of money when America was already weakened. Uh, but, um, well, sorry, deeply in debt, but the American economy was about to enter an enormous growth phase. So it was a very different set of circumstances. My general question is, how do you think this problem of indebtedness, of uh, future economic performance and so forth plays out in the battle for the hearts and minds of, uh, of nations that might fall one way or the other in this, in this sort of rivalry that's going on at the moment? Well, it is interesting to me that the two countries that have been the most deeply engaged with the BRI with China are Pakistan and Sri Lanka. And at the moment, they are both basket cases, uh, economically speaking. So I think there, there really is a flashing red light over offers of Chinese aid. You can go to Africa and you see many, many projects that were built by the Chinese, but you'll also hear a lot of complaints from locals about how um, the Chinese don't hire locally, they bring in all Chinese workers to do the work and so on and so forth. So it's, um, we can't count on China always being sort of ham-fisted and incompetent when it comes to managing its economic relations with other countries. But right now, I think we can say that they have spent a great deal of money and they have received very little in exchange for it. Um, and perhaps one reason is that, that a lot of what I think was driving the BRI was not even was not Chinese foreign policy. It certainly wasn't a you know, compassion for the needs of developing countries. It was compassion for the needs of large infrastructure companies in China, that now that China has over its own domestic infrastructure, um, these companies still want to build roads. They want to build bridges. This is what they know how to do. They want to build railroad lines. But in a way like Japan in the 1980s, the Chinese have overbuilt and overbuilt. So they were, you know, they were actually using taxpayer money or taxpayer-backed loans to create opportunities for powerful Chinese economic interests overseas. And the result in the end is something that neither serves the economic interests of the receiving country or even the economic and political interests of China. And so they're, I'm, I, I predict they're going to get smarter about this because the Chinese do not like to fail, but BRI so far has not been a success. Now, when I think about what we should do in the face of it, I don't think that what we should be doing is putting up a lot of money for white elephant projects that will never pay off, never earn out. Uh, you know, you don't help anybody. During the Cold War, all kinds of countries would get sort of steel mills built that didn't have railroads attached to them, that no one knew how to operate. And so, you know, you'd spend billions of dollars to build rusting hulks that don't employ anybody, help nothing. So we do not need to go back to that sort of thing. Uh, I think the West found a brilliant development strategy, um, and, and it is to 
the combination of free trade and free enterprise that um, that allowed so many a non-communist Asian countries to develop and flourish. So that Singapore is now richer than most European countries by far. Um, Taiwan, the same. South Korea, Japan. So this, you know, you don't need China to develop. What you actually need is a functioning Western oriented, or let's say capitalist system. Sadly, uh, we in the West, and I think we have to include Australia here too, are undermining that system. We and in the US have turned much more protectionist, but also we're sort of putting a lot of uh, environmental and other kinds of restrictions. We're, we're talking about, you know, don't invest for profit, invest for social gain, et cetera, et cetera, in ways that we're making invested capital less effective at doing what invested capital does best, creating jobs, opening opportunities, promoting development. So we've, uh, you know, we need to get back to what we're good at, I think. And if we do that, I think we can be reasonably confident that just as China's growth itself is simple, is really in many ways, you know, entirely made possible by opportunities that the West opened up. You know, China does not, China was smart enough to see an opportunity and jump on it, but it did not create a system that created the, op the opportunities that made China prosperous. That's what we do. That's what we know how to do is make others give others the chance to grow rich. Now, I've, uh, you know, in about 1980, India had about 65% of China's GDP before the Chinese miracle began. Today, India has about 17% of China's GDP. If India got back to having 65% of China's GDP, not even parity, but just where it was in 1980, China would face a very different picture in Asia. We would all see a very different picture because with an India that's cooking on all four cylinders, that's really moving forward, China's influence in Southeast Asia is going to be economically contested in a way it's not now. Uh, militarily, even if India underspends on defense, the Indian armed forces would be a great weight. China would be much more worried about its, its India frontier than it is. The Indian Navy and the Indian Ocean would be a very different kind of place. So China would, would at that point really be forced to say, you know what, we cannot simply dominate Asia. It's too big. The Indo-Pacific is too big. There are too many powerful entities in it. India has an even bigger population than we do, and they have nuclear weapons, and they have a big economy. So if we think about the long-term prospect in, in the Indo-Pacific and in the region, doing what we can to provide India with the opportunity to grow and helping insofar as we can Indians who want to grow, helping them do that, and encouraging them, I think the Indians themselves see the need in a way they haven't before, that, that their weakness, relative weakness in the face of China's growth has created massive national security and political issues for India. So there, there are answers to the problems that we face that don't involve endless war, that don't involve endless military buildups, we have to keep our strength up, especially in this bridge period, when China is too strong in Asia for its own good or anyone else's, right? While moving toward the creation of an Asia that is, it kind of has a natural balance of power. China, Japan, India, Australia, Indonesia, sort of a mix of great and middle powers who, are, who cannot be dominated by any single country, whether it's China or the United States. 
And that's the way it strikes me for a secure and prosperous future for Australia, for the US, for China, for India and all the neighbors. And I hope we can get there. Interestingly, Lee Kuan Yew, 20 years ago, towards the end of his active life, was writing a script that sounds just like that. And of course, no one was listening at the time. Which leads me to my final question. You've been very generous with your time. Uh, we look on at the possibility of another battle between two very old men in the next presidential uh, campaign in America. Uh, and we wonder about the next generation of leaders. Uh, you have very, very powerfully talked about the challenges that we face, the courage that's required to even be honest about how big and expansive and difficult those challenges are and their real nature which is in perhaps best described as saying it's much more to it than meets the eye, if I can put it that way. Um, what are the prospects for another Roosevelt or a Churchill seizing the moment in the West before it's uh, uh, too late and we lose confidence altogether in our leadership? Yeah, there are a lot of promising American politicians in the younger generations. Um, uh, you know, among governors, uh, Governor Youngkin in Virginia, um, I'm just thinking right now of Republican governors. I mean, on a Democratic side, Gavin Newsom seems to be very popular in, in, in California, but Governor, um, Governor Florida has really, you know, his, his popularity in the state is extraordinary. Uh, I meet, uh, you know, sitting in Washington, I spend a fair amount of time with uh, Republican senators. Uh, there are there are a number of them who seem to me to be very capable. So I don't actually think we have a shortage of talent um, on either side of the aisle. We do have, I'm generally an optimist about the American political system, and I think the American people on balance are pretty good at, at picking the best of the alternatives that they're given. I don't think our presidential nomination system has been working as well as one would like to see it for some time. I think it's been, we've had a number of times in, particularly in the 20th century, 21st century, where it's, the feeling is that neither party has really put its best foot forward in terms of nominations. And sometimes it's it's very appealing figures who might be better if they'd had a bit more international experience and exposure, maybe a little young, maybe in some cases a little too old. Um, and I, I I would I would like to see both Republicans and Democrats go to 2024 with fresh faces. But uh, you know I've only got one vote, just like everybody else. So not, uh, not a lot of chance that I'm going to be able to control that, that choice. <laughs> You've been very generous with your time. Uh, I uh, always enjoy your writings. I commend them. We've mentioned one book. Uh, we'll just put up on the screen now a selection of the books that you've written over the years. Uh, for those who might like to tap into them, uh, I, I appreciate very much your time. Thank you so much and uh, very happy to be here. And I tell you, it's a, it's a scary time. Uh, as an American, I'm really glad that uh, we're on the same side as Australia. Well, we owe our freedom, I guess, to America in the Second World War. And it's worth remembering in terms of what you said that uh, it was, of course, uh, General MacArthur who really led out of Melbourne. That was Allied headquarters down here during the darkest days of the Pacific War that charged back through the islands and then uh, on the decks of the Missouri signed that peace. And he warned then uh, the horrors of war, in particular what we'd seen at the end of the war, uh, prompted him to say that uh, without a spiritual recrudescence, mankind was doomed. He was very grim, very blunt in his warning, not without hope, but I'm not sure we've taken that avenue of hope that he referred to seriously enough. But you know, John, it's always been true that without a, a, a spiritual awakening, mankind is doomed. That's, that's always the case. In some ways, maybe it's a blessing for us that in our time, 
it's so much easier to see that than it's been in other times. And let's, and I hope that some of those who, who see this podcast will be led to reflect on some of these concerns. Well, we're looking for heroes. Perhaps we might call them heroes of the faith. Great. Thank you. Thanks for listening to John Anderson Direct. For further content, visit johnanderson.net.au. If you enjoy this podcast, please leave a rating and a review in iTunes. It helps other listeners find us. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.